We live in interesting times, and it's the day after the presidential election day. We don't know who the president is, but we know a lot about what Ohio is. It's this week in the CLE, the morning news discussion by the team at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with a weary Jane Cahoon, Chris Ranowski, and Laura Johnston. I'm weary, too. We're all up late last night, as most of you probably were. So we'll be a little tongue-tied as we have this discussion, but it's an important discussion to have. Let's get going. How did Ohio vote in the presidential election Tuesday? Jane Cahoon, the polls were completely wrong again. <laughs> and and if anything, we're even more pro-Trump than we were in 2016. What are the numbers? Yeah, you know, we've been talking for weeks about how surprisingly competitive Ohio was going to be in the presidential race. And that just, it just wasn't the case. Um, so Trump was uh, able to match his 2016 victory, uh, winning by eight points. The The final percentage was Trump 53.4 and Biden 45.2. That's unofficial, but I don't expect it to change much. But, uh, you know, predictably, Biden got a big vote margin over Trump in the, in the three largest counties. But in the rest of the state, Trump just crushed him. He got 900 and um, well, he beat him by 926,872 votes combined in 85 counties, you know, other than the the, the big ones. Biden got about 67 percent in Cuyahoga County, you know, which is a little up from what Hillary Clinton got four years ago. He got about 65 percent in Franklin County, uh, also better than Clinton. And same thing in Hamilton County. He got 57 um, percent. But the red counties just got even more red for Trump. He he won at least 80 percent of the vote in eight counties. And uh, overall, he won 88, 81 of the 88 counties. So the only ones in the Biden column were Athens, Cuyahoga, Franklin, Hamilton, Lucas, Montgomery and Summit. And he so, carried at least 60 percent of the vote in 71 counties. So a couple things. One, yeah. it was fascinating that Cleveland did not turn out. I mean, it was just surprising how little, how low the turnout was in Cleveland. But two, the 8% is exactly what Sherrod Brown won with a couple of years ago. And I'm wondering if Ohio is just boring and likes incumbents. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. Yeah, Rob Portman go, must be happy looking at the, these results. Yeah, he must be because it's, it's very, very, very strong. I just, I was surprised at the, at the swing from two years ago and and it's just I, or ohio loves donald trump i mean he he what was it mahoning county hadn't voted red in 50 years and it voted red this is over <laughs> by where the auto plant is this is youngstown which has been battered by the economy people voted for him trumbull county where lordstown is where the auto plant closed down he strengthened his numbers there, right? That's at least the last time I looked. I'm a little bit yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, he did. Um, he, he, um, yeah, it got even redder for him. I think it was like 50.4 to 48.4. So, oh, no, that was funny. I'm sorry. So ah. the, the people who who don't like Trump cannot understand this at all. And the people who love Trump cannot understand why the people in the cities don't get it. And I, I, what, what really has struck me about this election 
is how much we in this country don't understand each other. And we'll be doing some crunching today. Parma went heavy for Trump, but someplace like Moreland Hills, with a lot of kind of rich business people who've done well under Trump, went pretty heavy for Biden. And as you as you dance around the suburbs, you, you see that Solon went heavy for Biden. And I, I'm trying to understand the, the, the divide and how we can somehow bridge it, no matter who wins. Well, you know, it's still very much up in the air as we talk today. And really up in the air. You you cannot tell today who is going to win this election, even though Donald Trump got up last night and said, I want it and you're stealing it from me. It's just not true. The votes are being counted. But whoever wins, there's no mandate. There's no there's there was absolutely no blue wave anywhere. And so how do how do you how do you move as a state? You're Mike DeWine, right? You you got a whole bunch of people that are furious with you for shutting down the state, a whole bunch of people that support a president who is completely gung-ho about ignoring the coronavirus, what do you do? How do you, how do you bridge the divide that has been so heavily confirmed by what happened yesterday? Well, I certainly don't have an answer for that. <laughs> Go ahead, this, this is Laura Johnson. I, I was thinking about Mike DeWine's letter this morning that he sent out on Sunday, and we talked about on Monday's podcast, asking for you know partisan politics to be put aside and for people to work for the good of the state. But my opinion is that the showing yesterday and the decisive victory that Trump had in Ohio shows that there's a lot of people that don't want to put aside partisan politics and come together on the coronavirus. They don't think that that it needs to be addressed, really. They're just kind of like, let's just live our lives. And well, not everybody who voted for Trump come on. That. Look, Laura, but, the, the people on the other side, they want their kids to prosper. They want to have health care insurance. I I think we're very far apart on the coronavirus as well as a lot of other things. Yeah, but is that because we don't have anybody trying to unite people and come up with a compromise way forward? We talked about DeWine's trying to unite us. I just don't think it's worth it. Well, but but, but DeWine really hasn't tried to unite us. He keeps trying, you know, pretty, pretty phrases. Let's get together. Let's get together. That's not the leadership I'm talking about. Look, if DeWine had actually figured out, if he had had his health department figured out exactly how it's spreading and just say, for example, that we find out that there's a huge spread in bars, right? Well, you might be able to go to the the, the people that oppose shutdowns and say, look, here's here's where it's spreading. Here's how many people have died because of bars being open. What if we just close the bars? You, you know, compromise. Well, we won't shut down any other businesses. We'll just shut down the bars. There's no conversation like that taking place. It, it's just please, people wear a mask. Please, please don't get together in groups at your home. That, that That's not that's not compromise. That's not leadership. There are a whole bunch of people apparently in rural areas that don't want to wear masks. Not quite sure why, but but is there a way to have the conversation? You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How red is Ohio after the presidential election Tuesday? Jane Cahoon, we were a red state after 2016 by 7% margin, and we're a red state this morning with an 8% margin. But we also wondered before the election whether the state legislature might become less red, that the supermajority might go away. And if anything, the opposite happened. So, so it seems like Ohio, there, there is no question now over where Ohio stands. Right. I mean, we've talked a lot of, you know, trying to speculate about the House Bill 6 scandal and how that involved Republicans, you know, ramming through this corrupt bill and, gee, what kind of an effect it would have. 
And in fact, it looks like the Republicans are going to gain a couple seats in their supermajority, whereas we had thought, you know, if the Democrats, that they might have had a chance to net maybe two seats. So, you know, it looks, as I said, that the Republicans just went smoothly through this election uh, in the legislature anyway, although there is one uh, Senate seat in the Columbus suburbs that is a real squeaker. It's it's maybe, you know, less than 100 votes different between the Republican and Democrat there. But as far as the House goes, um, now Republicans are are solidly in control. It was just an awful day all around for for Democrats uh, in Ohio. Um, although in Cuyahoga County, they did narrowly oust Dave Greenspan, the Westlake Republican state rep who we talked about yesterday on the podcast. Monique Smith beat him about 51 to 49 percent. So that that was maybe, you know, one victory. Um, also, you can look at the congressional races. And once again, gerrymandering did its job. The Republicans just did an excellent job when they drew that map. Uh, they didn't, Democrats couldn't flip a single seat. So it remains 12 to four Republicans. But, the closest one was Steve Shabbat down in Cincinnati. And that one didn't even turn out to be that close. But, you know, let's put let's put it out there, though. The, the state went 8% for Donald Trump. The legislature is not, that's not the way the division goes. They've got a gigantic majority because of gerrymandering. Now, this is it after this election because of the census, we're supposed to start working on a more even system. Rich Exner, our data guru, has done a lot of work on this. We'll have to pay close attention to how that goes because the state government, as it exists right now, does not reflect the vote, right? Correct. So we'll just have to see. I mean, uh, yes, our system was reformed for the the seats that are going to be drawn for 2022, but you know, who knows what will happen there, whether they they didn't go as far as the reformers initially wanted to go. And with Republicans basically in charge of state government, you you just have to wonder what kind of real reform we're going to get. Yeah, we'll be paying very close attention to that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Ohio set any records with voting Tuesday, and was it mostly well-organized and peaceful at the polling places? Chris Anaski, we had really, really long lines in some places, no lines whatsoever in nearby polling locations. What was the tenor of the day? It was pretty interesting. I mean, we did break a lot of records yesterday, um, but it, it was interesting to sort of see people go, because we sent people around to to various polling places where we were hearing there were really long lines. Um, and my partner, actually, she she was working at one of them and saying that the, the lines were almost nonstop from the minute they opened to the minute that they closed. Um, so, you know, there were, uh, remind me, I think there were some that actually did stay open beyond, you know, the, the closing time, right? I mean, do we have a sense of how many of them actually stayed open beyond the time that they were supposed to close? There were at least a couple where the voting went on past 8.30. I think what we learned was the last votes were cast at 8.45 by people who were in line at, at 7. Was it Brook Park? I think Laura Johnston. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think Broadview Heights was also one of those. And, yeah. I, and, and so, I, you know, I think that there was uh, a, 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 lot of, a lot of enthusiasm about this election and, and, and really a lot of the troublemaking and and dirty tricks that we were sort of told to anticipate none of that really panned out and and again it it was one of those things where i didn't think 
this part. Yeah, I mean, we rarely have a lot of controversy <laughs> around things like this. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that th- things stayed peaceful and that we, we managed to have sort of an orderly evening. So can I, um, can I jump in here? Mm-hmm. This Laura is Laura Johnston. Um, Rocky River had one of the longest lines um, just down the street from me at our civic center. And so I was getting texts from friends all day, like updating me with pictures of the lines. And I stopped over there um, in the five o'clock hour. They actually had like entertainers out singing for the crowd. And I thought it was really interesting where the long lines were. Chris Quinn, you picked up on this pretty early in the day that it seemed the Cleveland and the inner ring suburbs didn't have near the weight that a lot of the further out suburbs did. But um, I think Courtney Astolfi is going to be looking into some of these precincts because there were towns like Rocky River where one polling place had hours long lines all day and others didn't have a line at all. So I, I think there's some fascinating data probably to, to mine in here too. Some yeah. of the early indication was that they had to reduce the number of normal polling stations in the, in the voting places for social distancing. But, but I, there, there was a point yesterday, I think Chris put a note up that, we had two polling places, like you said, Laura, really close together. One mammoth long lines, one people were walking in, getting their ballots and voting. And I, I am confused about how that happened be, because turnout was high everywhere. It wasn't like, you know, one half of Rocky River was turning out and the other half had not. I think what you could see in some of the inner ring is a lot more people, a, a bigger percentage of the registered voters had done early voting than you sometimes saw out in the outer ring. But yeah, we got it. We've got to get to the bottom of that. I'm sure the elections board would like to do it. I do think we need to tip our hat to them. They were they were in the jackpot on this thing and the election went pretty smoothly, right? I mean we don't it's a presidential election. There's always going to be some kind of lines. Does anybody think that the Board of Elections made mistakes? I didn't really hear much of anything, no real complaints. And I do think it's interesting um, that we had a record number of absentee and early votes too, um, which we had stories about last night. And I think that the majority of votes in Cuyahoga County were early votes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Donald Trump do in industrial counties like Trumbull, where the Lordstown plant closed, and Mahoning, which voted Democrat in every presidential race since the early 1970s? Lord Johnston, I, I, th- I think looking at this as a rural-urban divide may be too simplistic. We're going to have to take a deeper dive into what is separating the, the Trump voters from the anti-Trump voters. Uh, I was shocked, frankly, to see Trumbull and Mahoning do what they did. Yeah, this is really interesting. And we can't say that people weren't paying attention here because um, Trumbull and Mahoning counties have gotten a lot of attention over the last four years because um, Trumbull went red for the first time in 2016 for Trump. And I don't think people expected it then. They've been studying it ever since. Well, Mahoning, uh, just to the south of Trumbull, went red for the first time since 1972. According to Rich Exner, our data guru, this is the closest unofficial tally for a county in Ohio right now. That's like a difference of 2,255 votes. But it it flipped red. We actually had a story earlier in the night that called one red, one blue. And we're, we had to rewrite that 
that story. Julie Washington did it. Um, Mahoning is is home to Youngstown and Lordstown, which has been this big focus with the loss of the GM plant and the gain of Lordstown Motors, which is making electric trucks. Remember, not only did Trump show off this truck at the White House with Rob Portman and some other people, uh, Vice President Mike Pence visited Lordstown and talked up how the president was bringing jobs back to blue collar workers. We we talked to some store um, some folks there and they weren't all entranced with Trump, but apparently the majority was and thinks that he's doing a good job bringing people back or bringing jobs back to this area. They were even talking about it on NBC uh, last night, specifically about Lordstown Motors and some other businesses that are coming. So yeah, this is a fascinating microcosm of Ohio that the whole country wants to figure out. And yet in the cities, uh, people are are dead set against Trump. And it's just a, it's very interesting situation that's evolving in Ohio. I'm not sure how it'll rectify. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did the Cleveland schools tax, despite all the dark money that was spent to try and kill it, this was a tax that was not just a renewal. It was a five mil increase. Whenever school districts seek increases, there's a, there's a danger that people will reject it. If this had been rejected, it would have been a 12% cut in the budget to Cleveland schools, which would have been devastating. So Jane Cahoon, how did it do? Well, it didn't just pass. It passed resoundingly, 61.47% to 38.53%. And uh, perhaps that was surprising because it did draw opposition from this mysterious dark money group called Cleveland's Future Fund, which which put out a bunch of social media advertisements and, and mailers and you know, they they push the idea that this increase is going would close small businesses and and cause rents to spike up in the city. But uh, the the pro levy people issued mailers called Truth to try to combat these claims, and apparently their message uh, carried the day. It's um you know it's it's still not clear who coordinated the the opposition, and you know we have a couple of election commission complaints that might you know, reveal more about it. But suffice to say, the the Cleveland schools people are really, really happy today. Well, I actually, I think most people who care know who was behind the dark money campaign. You just can't <laughs> say it because it's not in the public record. And right. I do wonder now when they go into Cleveland to seek abatements for their properties and to seek deals in Cleveland City Hall, what kind of obstacles they're going to run into because a lot of people thought that this campaign was pretty underhanded and sneaky on the other hand these are people that own businesses in cleveland and we're going to end up paying a lot more money and that's the democratic process you get to debate attacks the dark money allows them to do it from cover which i think is what what annoyed so many people we did have a story of a landlord who was very upfront with his tenants if you pass this tax my taxes are going to go up and i'm going to raise your rents and so we'll have to see if that happens but i'm sure eric gordon is breathing much easier today layla tassi our columnist did a wonderful piece on him over the weekend about the struggles of dealing with the coronavirus so it's a good day for cleveland schools you're listening to this week in the cle Did voters put their faith into the Cuyahoga County library system or the Greater Cleveland Partnership of Business Interests when it came to a tax for the library? Laura Johnston, 
Greater Cleveland loves its libraries. <laughs> we love our libraries so much. We have multiple branches and multiple uh, uh, systems. But yes, uh, the library took the uh, the the win yesterday. Pretty overwhelming with about 60% for this one mil increase. It was the first time in 12 years that the Cuyahoga County Public Library has been on the ballot. The increase the library says is needed to maintain critical services in its 27 branches and 47 communities. So it doesn't cover the entire county. You might not have seen it on your ballot. You might not be paying for it if you don't live in one of those 47 communities. This tax is going to cost the owner of about a $100,000 home about $35 more a year. And that's going to raise $18 million for building maintenance. Remember, they just added all of those new branches and renovated a bunch. They're going to up the budget for books and materials. But yes, the GCP, which for a long time had, you know, endorsed most taxes, did take a stand against this tax. It said that they were going to scrutinize tax proposals. So while they did endorse the Cleveland schools, they said not to vote for the library. And they said it was just too much and they'd be willing to consider a short-term increase, but not this big one. But voters said, I'm sorry, <laughs> we like our so, so does any voter really care what the Greater Cleveland Partnership has to say about a tax? And this was this was an odd one. Yeah, they're they're all on a campaign. We ought to consolidate our library systems, which people in Cleveland are against because there are far more libraries in Cleveland per capita than there are out in the county. And if they consolidated, you could lose walkability to libraries. But it's just so odd that the, the GCP took on the libraries because that they're like the Metro Parks. They're incredibly <laughs> popular. People always vote for their library taxes. And all this did was kind of put a spotlight on the fact that there's not a whole lot of political clout here when they come out swinging at a tax like this and it wins in a landslide. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the next tax is that they come out against. Yeah, don't don't take a stance against books. <laughs> or, or or Metro Parks. When the Metro Parks come out, it'll books be interesting parks, to see what they yeah. do. All right, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did voters really opt to return Larry Householder to the Ohio House despite him being under indictment for racketeering in the 60 million bribery case over House Bill 6. Chris Ranowski, I think we saw this as a foregone conclusion, but that doesn't take any of the shock away. Yeah. So uh, by the end of the night, he had a significant lead over four writing candidates in his district, which covers Perry County and several other counties. Um so yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he was he was he was up against writing candidates. So you know, it's 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 not as if he was, you know, running against somebody who had, you know, spent the exact same amount of time fundraising and campaigning and 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 you know, doing all the things that you have to do to run a you know a legitimate Democratic Party challenge to him. But you know, my my suspicion is that what you know, if he did have a you know, a stronger challenger, he probably still would have won. So, you know, the odds of him keeping his job are a different story. You know, his <laughs> his his fellow House Republicans are probably going to try to expel him uh, when he takes, you know, the seat again in January. So, I mean, they've said this, you know, I and I don't think that they were holding out hope that he would, he you know, that, that he was going to lose. I think they just sort of understood that, you know, to, to, you know, I mean, he was running. I mean, you can't just tell him to stop campaigning. And so, you know, it's you have to sort of let the process shake out. And then on the other side of that, you have to deal with it. There were questions earlier this year why they didn't impeach him 
when he was originally indicted. And the answer was, if they do that and he gets reelected, they can't do it again. So it looked like they kept the impeachment quiver, impeachment arrow in their quiver so that they could use it to to oust him. Although they haven't repealed HB6, so maybe they'll keep him around. <laughs> well, you never and, know. And look, I mean, they effectively neutered him politically. I mean, there's not I mean, they stripped away his speakership. They, it, you know, I mean, the only thing that he did that could have had any possible effect on the Republicans is he kept pulling, you know, he kept pulling money away from them, but that didn't seem to really matter anywhere else in the state. So it's fascinating. You know, you think that something like this would, you know, motivate people, but, but, you know, like, like we said earlier in the podcast, you know, maybe people just are lazy and like incumbents and and he's the guy. It makes you wonder if Jimmy Demore ever gets out of prison and runs again, whether we'll elect him. To the Do you mean future county executive Jimmy Demore? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and look, the people down there voted for for Householder. We did note a few weeks ago, a month ago or so, that the local newspaper down there did candidate profiles, and in the Larry Householder one, there was absolutely no mention of the HB six racketeering <laughs> case. So maybe they weren't aware. Maybe they just weren't paying attention. But they have a a. Well, here's a history question, and, it, and maybe maybe this will stump everybody. Have we ever reelected an impeached president? I mean, that may be unprecedented, too. So, you know, we're, <laughs> we're, 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 we're I mean, here we are. I mean, it's nothing makes sense. The sky is purple. So, <laughs> OK, well, but Ohio is very red. You're right. listening to this week in the CLE. Did Democrats pick up any seats on the Ohio Supreme Court in their effort to take the majority? Jane Cahoon, a little bit surprising given the red wave. Yeah, the, this is the one bright spot for Democrats, I guess. They they did pick up one seat on the Ohio Supreme Court, but they did not capture the majority as they had hoped because there were two seats in play. So it is a 5-2 majority right now in favor of Republicans, and next year it'll be 4-3. to three. Uh, Democratic Appeals Court Judge Jennifer Bruner, who's a former Secretary of State and so had some statewide name recognition, she ousted Republican Justice Judy French. But the Democratic challenger in the other race, Cuyahoga County Common Police Judge John P. O'Donnell, he fell short in his attempt to beat Justice Sharon Kennedy. Oddly, both races were like 55 percent to 45 percent. So I don't think the outstanding ballots are, are going to have any effect there. There are over 300,000 outstanding ballots statewide uh, absentee and provisionals that that haven't been put into the count yet. But this one's but- out of reach. But it is interesting that that people split the vote. It's almost like they were paying attention to this. What what even though the Republicans have a four three majority, the Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor is quick to say, "Look, we don't make decisions based on our politics." And she's actually broken with her Republican colleagues on the court on occasion. I'm not sure that that this doesn't, even though the the majority's still there, doesn't bring some interesting balance to decisions they make. Yeah. You know, home rule. There there have been some split decisions on home rule. Is one more vote going to make a difference? The the Ohio but Supreme the, Court the big is, thing is is gonna be sorry to interrupt. The big thing is going to be gerrymandering because as we talked earlier on the podcast, they're gonna have these new districts in twenty twenty two and those could uh, end up before the court and and they could be in a position to have to make decisions on that. But I think you're right. This court, uh, the current court, even with the five to two Republican majority, they 
they seem fairly collegial and, and, uh, you know, it's not always a five, two vote on things by, by any stretch. No, I, I, I think this is going to be an interesting body to watch for the next two years. I think in two years, Maureen O'Connor is term limited and actually Kennedy is the one that people talk about running for the chief justice's seat in two years, even though she was just reelected. But the next two years ought to be, ought to be somewhat interesting with what they do given this, this slight change. And I, I do find it fascinating that voters split on that because in there almost- was a lot of money. I should mention a lot of outside money put in this race because of what the parties had at stake, uh, particularly on the gerrymandering. So you had complaints about ads on both sides and at the Ohio State Bar Association. Uh, they criticized both the Republican and Democratic ads. So, you know, maybe those made a difference. And maybe it's just the Bruner name recognition from back in her day as a state elected official. I I just the fact that people voted for one Republican and one Democrat instead of going with the straight ticket the way they pretty much did in Cuyahoga County is interesting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay. That's a end of a bleary-eyed podcast. I know we're all going to hit the wall at about 2.33 o'clock, so we got a lot of work to do in the next few hours. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 